Welcome, everyone. Uh, it is my distinct pleasure to have you here, and it's a privilege for Jeremy and I to have you here as an audience, so thank you for attending. Uh, my name is Matthew Girardi. Uh I am in the AWS Marketplace. Um, I lead several categories there, monitoring, DevOps, application security. I own the Marketplace for Containers. I have a team, actually, that manages all of that stuff. Uh, and so um, what we're going to be talking to you about today, uh, I don't want the title of the session to sort of put you off. We're not necessarily, we're not talking mostly about AWS native services. We're actually focusing on third-party ISV products, especially with sort of a marketplace angle to it. So just in case folks look at that title and they're like, oh, we're going to learn about Security Hub and Guard Duty and things of that nature. It's not really geared toward that. We'll talk a little bit about the interplay between AWS native services and uh, our third-party ISV services through Simpress technology, uh, but that's just to sort of set the record. Um, and again, I want to welcome Jeremy. Uh, it's a pleasure to have him uh, on board. So just to kind of set the tone of what we're talking about today, um, we are uh, going to talk to you about speed and security. Uh, there's a little bit of stability as well as compliance into that too, so, but I wanted to shorten that, uh, that opener and, and make it clear that, that that's what we're, we want to get across to you. Um, Jeremy's going to go into a lot of detail, a lot more detail than I will, on sort of the people, process, and tooling pieces of this, which are all necessary things, right? So you guys are probably aware of DevOps. Everyone says culture is number one. Process typically is number two. Tools, number three, right? You can't get to the tooling stage without actually accounting for those other two pieces. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be fairly abstract, and I'm not going deep into what is DevOps, how do you set up a pipeline, how do you protect it. I'm going to give sort of enough context so that Jeremy can then jump into kind of the concrete of how does a, how does a customer actually do this? How, what are they thinking about? What are the process things that they have to get in place? How are they thinking about monolithic architectures on-prem and, and getting those shifted over to distributed architectures within AWS infrastructure? Uh, microservices and so on and so forth. How do we stay compliant? How do we keep this stuff under control? How do we have visibility into the complexity of all this stuff? Because you're, you're introducing more and more complexity. Um, and so that ratio is off. I'm not sure how it is, but if uh, it should be one part me to two parts Jeremy, and if that ratio is off, then something is wrong, because you don't want to hear me talk. You want to hear this guy talk. Uh, and then the big thing we want you guys to come away with, and Jeremy's going to go through a narrative. He's going to go through a story, right? And so you guys are all on some form of a journey, right? Some of you are cloud-born, and you're like, look, we have decisions to make, but it's not nearly uh, as brutal as some of the decisions that have to be made when you're taking these old-school monolithic applications and trying to figure out how you can modernize them. Not only, not only modernize them, but just get them migrated, right? There are a wealth of, of options to migrate, wealth of options to, uh, to modernize those applications. And once you have them in a runtime environment on AWS, you gotta, you gotta optimize its performance, right? So let's start by, uh, I love this slide, by the way. Uh, we are absolutely all about the customers. Um, we help companies like Simpress Technology focus on what we call the, the competitive advantage or differentiated work that they do to, that, that allows their sort of core IP to delight their customers. What we focus on at AWS is the undif undifferentiated heavy lifting, right? We provide the infrastructure and the tooling around that to make sure that customers don't have to worry about that. You guys don't want to worry about that. Let us worry about that. Um, it allows you to innovate. It allows you to do things like utilize serverless or microservices architectures on top of containers, things that allow you to move much, much quicker, add features, functions much more quicker, 
that allows your customers to actually be much, much happier, right? Allow you to migrate under your terms. We'll get a little bit more into that. And then overall, what we're going to be talking about today is really under the uh, umbrella of reducing risk, right? So everything we talk about, you know, automate, do this, migrate, do that, modernize, do that, optimize your applications, do that. We want to talk about risk reduction, right? Because you have what we call the Ducati crowd, right? Or the Porsche crowd, whatever you're your, your flavor is, that want to go fast. We have developers that all they want to do is get those features out. And then you have what we call the Volvo crowd, right? The governance folks, the security folks that tend to want to slow you down and, and, and keep you in check. So what are, we, what, what are questions that we're typically hearing? Uh, and, and these are a sample of questions that we hear in 2019. There are many more, but I sort of curated these few. The, the three that we're going to really focus on today, and especially in Jeremy's talk, is around the top three here, right? Now, that doesn't mean that the bottom four aren't uh, important, but um, are my resources secure is, is typically the number one question we get, and security at AWS is job number one, above and beyond anything else. Are my applications running well, right? So whether that's application performance monitoring, whether that's your logging technologies, your logging platforms, you want to understand what is actually happening and get that visibility into your applications running on AWS. And then finally, am I on budget? I, I didn't actually mention this stuff last year, cost optimization, spend management, not that important to me. Turns out it's really important to our customers. Uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about how uh, Simpris treats their cost optimization strategy and to make sure that they're fast, they're agile, they're stable, they're secure, they're compliant. But you know what? They're actually doing it on budget as well. Uh, again, for cloud-born companies, this might not be as uh, relevant, but we are seeing a lot of you know, on-prem migrations. There's a lot of work to be done out there. A lot of workloads still in on-prem environments and data centers. Um, from a Simpris and from a typical customer perspective, we, we sort of see these four as, as being the key issues that are, that are dealt with with the four questions that we typically get, right? So challenges with existing software contracts, license portability, and so on and so forth. I'll tell you a little bit why Marketplace is uh, sort of uniquely uh, positioned within our services portfolio to address some of those concerns. Uh, evaluating and onboarding new software vendors. Again, that's a beautiful uh, aspect of the marketplace, uh, and we'll get a little bit more into that. Uh, we want to bring on-premises governance controls to the cloud. We do have governance controls. We have service catalog and our control services portfolio that helps with those sort of things. And then we need to drive cultural change beyond IT, digital transformation, right? Our talk essentially really, really gets deeply into that lower right corner, if you will, about digital transformation, driving process, and cultural change. So decisions, right? Uh, the, the, the thing you're going to see, or the, or the theme or the thesis that you're going to see that's going to run through this presentation is really around, there's a ton of decisions to be made, right? Um, and not every company is the same. We'll kind of go through, look, there, there's a maturity cycle for all this stuff. What, what is it that you're going to migrate? What is it that you're not going to migrate? What are you going to get rid of? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, am I going to go to microservices, or am I going to skip straight over to something like a serverless technology, right? And we've seen companies do that. Um, uh, you know, which uh, uh, microservices firewall do I use, or do I use one at all, right? It's a good idea to use one, by the way. So there are a ton of decisions that you have to make. Jeremy's going to take you a lot through, uh, going to take you a lot more through kind of the, the very specific, concrete decisions that Simpris Technology had to make on their way to evolving, and you can see we're always evolving, right? It's not like, hey, here's point A, here's point B, we've gotten to point B and we're done. It's nothing like that, unfortunately. The way we think about cloud migration, again, we have kind of these two trajectories, depending on if you're cloud native or uh, born in the cloud, cloud native, whatever you want to call it, versus kind of an on-prem technology. The thing I want to, uh, I, I, I could go for 30 minutes on this one slide, because uh, I, I really like it, but 
as you get into your migration strategy, so let's consider this as to be an on-prem to uh, AWS cloud conversation, uh, you have to think about what you want to migrate, when you want to migrate, and so on and so forth. But within that context, you're also thinking about, well, I have an opportunity to actually modernize my applications. Right? And so some companies will do this sequentially. They'll lift and shift and then decide, look, I no longer like this monolithic architecture, for instance, and I want to consider microservices within containers and see how that works out for me in terms of kind of tra transforming my business in the way that we do things. Right? When companies do make that decision uh, to, to, to migrate and then modernize, without DevOps, if I'm going to a microservices architecture, for instance, I'm going to a containerized uh, sort of distributed architecture, without a, pr a proper DevOps <laughs> culture process instead of tooling in place, you really can't take advantage of those situations. So as an, as an architect, as a cloud architect, if I'm saying, look, I, I love the thought behind this and, the, and the, the, the ability to sort of break these things down into thousands of microservices and then update those microservices really, really lightning quick, uh, unless you have the culture, the process, and you know, eventually the right tools in place, it's just not gonna work out. So that we're gonna get a lot more into that into the talk as well. And then this is kind of the slide that we call the three R's, right? So as, as you're migrating, as you're thinking about modernizing, um, you typically have these, these six, typically these six, there's, there's sort of variations on this, but these are the ones that we typically see. Uh, you, you know, re-host, uh, re-platform um, are, are a couple of things. The retain and retire are not as interesting from my perspective. Obviously, those are decisions that you have to make. Um, but the two things, the two themes that we're going to kind of focus on here are kind of right in the middle, right? So it's refactoring. And that's those, those, if you think about this on a spectrum of the lowest complexity of what I can do from a migration modernization perspective, all the way over to the right side, which is the most complex thing I can do, but maybe driving the most value. Um, on the lower end is really the, the repurchase piece, right? So, um, and what we mean by that is uh, you have the opportunity to, what you're using in, from an on-prem perspective in your tooling set, you can actually repurchase some of those tools, or most of those tools, hopefully, through the AWS marketplace and treat that tooling set as just another AWS service that gets billed automatically with your other services, right? Um, and so you, you, you have that ability to do that. And we find those as to be kind of the supporting characters for when you want to actually do things like refactor, right? So you want to actually take that, that, that uh, monolithic uh, application and architecture and then re-architect it into something like a microservices architecture. Um, once, you, once you decide to do that, you need that supporting cast of tools that you can easily repurchase. So again, the main theme of this, I'm not gonna go through all the various uh, pieces here, um, when it comes to refactoring and really modernizing your applications, uh, absolutely do that. It's generally a good thing to do in order to have uh, you know, the agility that you need and the speed that you need. But through Marketplace, you can actually buy some tooling that Jeremy will talk about to support that. Very, very quickly on DevOps, uh, this is my probably my oversimplified version of it, just, but just to make sure that we're all on the same page here when we're talking about DevOps, because people throw around Agile and what's Agile, what's DevOps. Super quick, so waterfall, old school uh, development process, lots and lots of code done in sequential order with lots of manual testing. Uh, you find an error at the end of that cycle, and this could be a months long cycle. You gotta revert all the way back to the beginning and start that cycle over again in order to fix those bugs and then get code out, hopefully eventually, right? What Agile does is it actually compresses the time frame for that stuff. And you have developers that are really, really concerned and really, really good at getting code out really quickly. Uh, they have things like automated testing uh, that is absolutely critical to this piece. 
Problem here is that on the operation side or when that code actually hits a production environment, they're not really in the know. They're not really uh, responsible, if you will, uh, for that code. And so there then comes in DevOps, right, which uh, takes all of those issues and sort of ideally does away with them. Uh, you get really, really small pieces of code that's being pushed out really, really quickly. You have automated testing, and your infrastructure code, your, your, your security and your compliance, as well as your application code is all being handled at the same time with the same sets of responsibilities in very, very small chunks and getting out into your production environment very, very quickly. So, so the operations piece for DevOps is really the key piece to that, right, that kind of holds it all together, separates it from Agile. Now when you get into DevSecOps, we work with the SANS Institute, and this is their sort of reference architecture, if you will, for, uh, for DevSecOps. Um, I've tried to give talks about this, but I find it gets really, really confusing really, really quickly. Um, so, uh, by the way, this is great. If you go to SANS.org, uh, SANS I think it is, um, you can kind of read up on all of the tooling sets and kind of how they uh, segment the world of DevSecOps. Absolutely worth a read. We actually do a webinar series as well within the security space that is co-sponsored by the SANS Institute uh, that is absolutely fantastic. Um, but I'm gonna break this down into a slightly more uh, simplified view of the world. Um, so we talk about security of the CI-CD pipeline, uh, and so that's the actual, your code is running through that pipeline, but you have, again, these sort of supporting characters around it that insulate uh, uh, your code from, uh, from a security and compliance perspective. And those are things like IAM, which is you know, the ability for people and systems to talk to the right people, the, I'm sorry, the right things at the right time uh, in the right way, right, essentially. So you want to set up those things. You have web application firewalls, of course, and then you have a whole set of tools to ensure visibility, performance management, uh, and some security and compliance features, right? Uh, and then once you get into security within your code, and this is typically when we talk about application security or application security testing, we get into the phases of DevOps, and then we see things like this at each stage. You get threat modeling, which is typically really a manual exercise, right? Code review is a manual exercise. But then you have some automated features like your initial SAS inside of your IDE, right? So you can do some static analysis at that point. Not anything super robust, but it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a starting point. And then your commit phase, you have things like software composition analysis to figure out the dependencies in your open source libraries, see what might actually impact your code uh, and your applications from a security perspective down the road, catch it early, break the build if you have to, so on and so forth. Container security, obviously, is something that is ramping up really quickly with our partners like Twistlock and Aqua. They're also looking for vulnerabilities in your uh, Docker images and so on and so forth. Um, and then on and on and on, right? So you have deeper SaaS that comes in the acceptance phase. You start to get into your dynamic analysis tools like Tenable, Qualys, Rapid7. Uh, and then finally in deploy, um, you have things uh, like configuration management from Chef and Puppet, Ansible, and so on and so forth to make sure that your security policies that are embedded in your nodes remain compliant and don't get out of whack. And then you have things like Previty and Contrast Security that are doing uh, runtime application self-protection. Relatively new technologies, uh, but, but interesting nonetheless, typically paired up with a WAF. And then under, underneath that all, you have continuous compliance. Obviously, not obviously to some people, but there's a difference between being secure and being compliant. Um, and I used to do a whole, com uh, a whole talk on this. Um, but you can be secure and yet non-compliant. You can be compliant yet not, sec not secure. Uh, as I'll show in an another slide, uh, the, the uh, optimal state is really to be both secure and compliant uh, as you're going through your DevOps process. 
So typically, the way that we, we break this down is um, you're looking at everything as code. Infrastructure is code. Obviously, you have application code. Uh, you have lots of opportunities to actually embed security and compliance as code within your application code and within your infrastructure code. All of that stuff in parallel is going through your CICD uh, and being tested in similar ways, not, not always exactly the same. And then once those are getting out into production, uh, you have that robustness from, from th basically three perspectives, right? <clears throat> so let's take just a quick look at uh, several different uh, uh, options of companies, right, that, that they have. And this is a little bit about the maturity curve and the evolution of companies that, that Jeremy will, will talk a little bit more about with Simpris. Um, but let's just assume that you have this optimal security line up at the top. Um, your security posture, the further up you get on that vertical side, the better off you are. And then look at time, right, or delivery frequency at the bottom. So you can think of this first scenario, scenarios A, B, and C. This is a typical old school company that might be on-prem. They have monolithic app, uh, application. It takes them a long time to deliver new code updates, as we mentioned in the beginning of uh, the presentation, right? And then you have a point at which you have to consider, is this thing secure? Your security experts are kind of looking at the stuff, and they're saying, look, this stuff is not secure. You have vulnerabilities here that you have to account for. There may be 100. We'll try to help you prioritize, but mostly we'll point you to a wiki or we'll print off a PDF for you to kind of follow along, and you guys figure it out, right? And then they're forced to say, well, in case A, um, I can really sort of compromise on the security stuff, but I can get something out quickly right after that. In, in, in case B, it's like I'm going to compromise not as much and hopefully get something out in a reasonable time. And then in C, it's, look, I, I'm not going to compromise at all. I got to do all of these fixes, but I'm going to really suffer when it comes time to update my features within that particular application code. Then you have case D here, which is typically like a Netflixy type of thing, right? So born in the cloud. Maybe Amazon.com does this as well. They, they, they tend to automate a lot of stuff, right? They do continuous delivery. Um, and so uh, you have these companies that are able to take advantage of automation, 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 pushing out into microservices, pushing out into serverless technologies to keep up with your consumption rates of Netflix and all the great shows that are on there. Uh, and I guess Amazon Prime has some good shows too, so pay attention to that. And then we have what we call uh, case F here. And I think Jeremy's going to talk a little bit more about how Simpris falls into this. But these are, this is a mixture of automation and manual processes. And this has to do with culture processes and less to do with tools. Um, it's not because there aren't tools out there that can automate everything. But I think we generally see that, hey, we're pushing automation, automation, automation. And my point being is that not only is this an evolutionary process, but it is based on the way that you need to run your business. Some businesses will say, look, we're, we're either risk averse or we have policies in place where we exist within a vertical that doesn't really allow us to do the automation that a Netflix does, nor would we ever want to do that. And so the, the, the critical piece to this is, yeah, we're big fans of automation, but it works for us. It may not work for everyone. And you need to figure out where you are sort of on that maturity curve and, and, and where, you need, where you want to be, right? Uh, again, speed and stability. I used to label this slide nirvana, like you want to get to a nirvana state by having, if you think about the vertical axis as speed and stability, which is typically DevOps, and then look at security compliance below that. What you want to be able to do, and again, Jeremy's going to talk about this, is hand in hand, you want to make sure that you have a well-developed DevOps practice um, but you then want to make sure that your compliance is following suit, right? So in, in terms of thinking evolutionarily about companies and their march toward automated security, automated compliance, and, uh, and, and sort of DevOps, best practices in DevOps, um, they, they typically go along this path of 
uh, going from kind of the lower left all the way up to the upper right, right? And so when you're thinking about your companies, how automated and how automated should these, these sort of two dimensions be, you can sort of map out where you are relative to a lot of other companies. So in the marketplace, as I mentioned, um, I do work for the marketplace. This is sort of just a two-sided marketplace. It's kind of like Amazon.com, except we have uh, ISV vendor offerings that are available. Um, it's a pay-as-you-go model. So we have a ton of stuff on there, right? I'm not gonna go through, I, I used to make this sort of a NASCAR logo slide and I sort of did away with that because there were just too many little logos all over the place. But we have a ton of stuff in there, right? Uh, not only do we have DevOps tooling, and, and again, Jeremy will get into a reference architecture around, around DevOps and security, um, but we have a bunch of security products that sort of play a role within that ecosystem. So we have static analysis, we have dynamic analysis, you can see. Uh, we have uh, we have platforms that are available through a marketplace if you want to sort of automate your uh, your responses and your remediations. Obviously, logging and monitoring. We have privilege access management, incident response with companies like PagerDuty, uh, ITSM with companies like Sharewell, so that you can connect your ticketing systems to all of this stuff. Uh, I mentioned containers, uh, uh, security, um, uh, just a bunch of stuff, right? So. I, I really uh, advise that you go to the AWS Marketplace and look up some of the products that we have and, and, and figure out whether that makes sense for you. So with that said, um, I call this a transition slide. So Jeremy and I talked a lot about this, like how, what's the best way to transition? I said, well, I would love to have a beer up here and just sort of hand it off to you, but they wouldn't let me do that. So uh, Jeremy and I both share this in common. We both have Massachusetts roots. Um, I now live in Portland, Oregon, so uh, Jeremy is still in the Massachusetts area. Where we then diverged is, I'm a Raiders fan, and he's a Patriots fan, so I, on the AFC sort of continuum, we're way at opposite ends, and I think Jeremy was kind of looking at me like, can I trust this guy? But then, we sort of reconverged, and we're like, we love IPA. So, what I did was, I brought a bunch of IPAs for him from Portland, and said, we're gonna have a party after this is all done. And so that is the best way I could think of to transition over to my esteemed friend and customer, Jeremy. Perfect. Why don't you go ahead? Thank you. All right. Thanks, Matt. Cool. Thanks for the introduction, and thanks to you guys for joining us here at the end of the day. I promise we'll make this as quick as we can. <clears throat> um, so Matt talked uh, a lot about DevOps and security automation and integrated controls, uh, and I'm going to give you kind of a real-world example of how that's played out for us uh, in terms of people, process, and tooling uh, within SimPress technology, uh, So, which is where I work. So to jump right into that, I'll start by giving you a very, very quick background of what we actually are and who we do. Uh, so I work technically at some level for Simpress. We're a company of companies. Um, you've probably recognized our most notable and largest brand, Vistaprint, uh, business cards. We have several other brands uh, all across Europe, in addition to in the Americas and Asia. Um, but you heard Matt probably saying Simpress technology, which you don't yet see. Um, that's where I actually work, uh, which is at the center of this. All of these companies basically print things on things, think high quality, low cost, low volume. Uh, within Simpress technology, at the center of that, we build a platform of services that all of these other companies can leverage to print things on things better. Um, so a little bit of context uh, on that. <clears throat> uh, my job, in a nutshell, is to basically make operational excellence uh, something that's within reach for those groups. Um, I do that across a couple areas. You guys can read through those yourselves, but where we're gonna focus in today, as you may imagine, is on the Cloud Center of Excellence uh, and our journey kind of in evolution there, uh, along with the rest of our friends at our company. Um, so 
to continue to set the stage appropriately for our journey and evolution through DevOps and security as well, take us back to 2015 uh, when we were just Vistaprint. Uh, at that point in time, the company's about 10 years old. It was founded in our uh, CEO and founder's dorm room in Paris. Um, and you know, we had a website that we sold business cards over. That whole thing uh, was running on on-prem uh, infrastructure. We managed everything from you know, bare metal up to VMs, monolithic architecture for our website. That created conditions that had things like you know, a three-week release cycle for us. Um, we had centralized development tools and technology. Um, and security and ops ownership were oftentimes separated from developers. Maybe the security was even an afterthought. Um, you know, uh, and that was just the way that we had evolved. It's no fault of our own, but you know, at that time, that was what had happened. Um, and we were running, I think at this time, about billion and a half dollar run rate annually. Um, but we started to notice some nibbling kind of at the edges of that and knew that we needed to do something about it, at least with respect to how we were managing and consuming technology, right? And that, for us, was a move to the cloud. Uh, so fast forward to, let's say, 2016, when we split out Simpress Technology, again, which is where I work to build that mass customization platform, uh, which is comprised of RESTful microservices, speaking JSON, all of which were born uh, in AWS. Um, we have a state now in which we're doing deployments continuously. There's no three-week release cycle or happening on demand when dev teams are ready to let them go with this stuff integrated. Going to get into all that, but it could be multiple times per day or even per hour. Um, it depends. We have a uh, fresh development stack that supports this kind of operation mode. Um, and we also have a DevOps culture, and I'm going to talk about this more specifically, though, in which we have some integrated security controls automatically and some that are not. Um, but I'm going to tell you kind of about our story uh, through that evolution. <clears throat> so quick note on that separation from Vistaprint. We were fortunate to be able to uh, basically my toast out of Vistaprint and say, if we could do, if we could redesign the way we do operations and development and security, how would we do it? And we came up with those things that I showed on the previous slide, which were um, you know, autonomous dev teams, fresh dev stack, RESTful microservices, speak JSON, those are the only rules. Everything else is you know, pretty much free reign technology-wise. Um, we, we did that. We were able to do that. And we were very fortunate to be able to do that. Not everyone can. I, I like to think of kind of where we had evolved to with our monolithic and on-prem infrastructure as being kind of analogous to this Subaru legacy, pun intended. Um, but be, by being able to just separate ourselves out of that immediately, hit the reset button, and do things the way that we wanted to, we were able to make a jump to a new type of culture, which is a hard thing to do. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit also about how we were able to accomplish that, but this isn't something that is necessarily easy. I think we had a tremendous advantage in being able to do that. I think by, by being able to do that, we are able to avoid potentially maybe trying to build this into, let's say, what would be a faster car, um, but doing it maybe piece by piece and ending up with something like this, whereas in, if you look, the, you can see the it's terribly photoshopped anyway. Um, <clears throat> We were able to avoid a situation like this, I think, because we were fortunate enough to be able to go from you know, doing it one way wholesale to doing it another way. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about the, the people part of that. The culture really is what I mean when I say that part of that that enabled us to do that, the leadership alignment, but that's coming next. Um, and by doing that, we were able to avoid this thing, end up with something more like this thing. Um, and so I guess the point of this is if you're able to do that, that'd be great. It worked out well for us. 
totally recognize that's not gonna be an option for everybody. So take what I'm about to tell you as an illustrative example of how it can be done. It may not work for you, but hopefully you can learn something from what we figured out for ourselves. So um, getting back to, let's say, the 2015, 2016 timeframe where we were gonna jump into the cloud, it can feel overwhelming. Uh, when you're gonna make that transition, especially if you're going wholesale from what you knew to something that's entirely new. Um, but <clears throat> with anything that feels overwhelming, especially in engineering, it's important to just get started somewhere, right? And so that's what we did. Um, we started off with a shared account strategy, basically where we had all of our people and services and infrastructure and everything in a single account. And the reason we did that was we wanted it to be discoverable, we wanted it to be what we thought would be simple. Um, and that's where we got going, and it, and it was discoverable. Um, but there were a series of issues that that posed, and I'm gonna just run through them here in, in series, and we'll talk about these themes. Cost accountability piece was hard. Everyone's stuff was in you know, the same bucket. You can tag stuff, uh, but it's a challenge to do that, um, and it was hard to actually be able to get accountability out of that. Um, there were operational conflicts. If Matt and I are both in this account, and it's our holiday season, we're a seasonal business, and I ramp up to an instance limit, let's say he's subject to that same limit, and so he's trapped by that, unbeknownst to him. So that's a real example of some of the challenges of having that type of strategy. Uh, and the security piece, kind of by design, it's natural to be an admin in your account, and it's natural for others to not be. When your account is shared with someone else, there's sort of a conflict there that you can figure out pretty quickly, and that causes a little bit of a, uh, an issue by design. And it kind of works out to be something like this, where there's everyone in the same pool sharing a lot of stuff that maybe they shouldn't be sharing. Maybe there's not enough chlorine in there. I don't know. Um, so what we did basically was transition to a linked account strategy in which we separated them out, the stuff that was in that account, into um, several accounts, which were grouped by services, maybe teams, but smaller logical groupings. Um, and by doing that, we were able to get a better handle on the cost thing, right? Because now costs are localized to a single bucket, or sorry, to a single account or accounts. Um, the operational concerns are mitigated, great. Everyone has their own account, their limits are their own, things like that. Um, and the security per unit was kind of improved by design. There were now barriers in place which hadn't existed before, which we all benefited from, um, from not sharing all the same things. Um, but it posed some challenges, right? Um, the cost accountability piece became more complex um, just by virtue of having a lot more accounts to keep track of. Uh, and the operational uh, conflicts and security things, while improved, um, still pose some challenges, right? So we needed to stay on top of that. If we were gonna continue to operate in this decentralized and autonomous world in which dev teams kind of own everything from cradle to grave, I'll come back to that, um, then we needed to be, provide technology and also have uh, a culture and uh, process that would keep up with that. So for the cost accountability piece, we ended up partnering with CloudAbility. Um, that basically gave us very rich insight into what was going on in these individualized accounts, both for teams operating in them and also for the business at a high level, right, which was the challenge. It was easy. We had one account, we'd look at a bottom line for one thing, and now we had N amounts of accounts. As we had more services, we also had more accounts. And so we partnered with CloudAbility uh, it was recently, I guess, acquired by Aptio to be able to keep track of that stuff and empower these independent dev teams with the insight they needed to operate efficiently in the cloud, right? Um, for us, our cloud expenditure is our single largest IT expense, I think, in the company, and so, you know, pays to stay on top of that. Um, this is available in Marketplace, uh, and 
So I will also talk about the operations piece. Next we'll address the security stuff, but the operations piece um, it was really a DevOps culture, which at its core um, is a culture in which developers also do operations things. It's, an, it's one more job for everyone who is a developer, right? Um, but in localizing that stuff, you're able to achieve a lot more speed and ownership. Um, and so the foundation of that is setting the expectation with teams that they'd be responsible for ops tasks in, uh, in addition to development. And that was, that was the start. Um, we were able to accomplish this, I think in large part because we had great air cover. I remember back to a town hall meeting that we had in 2015 in which our CTO and one of his directs, who's my boss, Jim, who's here right now, actually, I got up on stage and talked about how we were going to the cloud. We were going to do RESTful microservices. Uh, we were going to shamefully, or shamelessly, sorry, shamelessly, steal the Spotify model and apply that to ourselves. Uh, and we were going to move more quickly and iterate better on our technology um, in that way. And so that support was critical for us to get through what I described already as a hard transition. We had to update our tech stack to support this, right? We used to have centralized everything. We needed to have something that was consumable by autonomous dev teams that they could both make their own and operate with at speed. For us right now, that's GitLab for our SCM, kind of build, maybe oftentimes deploy stuff too. New Relic and Sumo Logic to understand both what's going on with those services at a base level and also do some logging and forensic alerting on that stuff. And then PagerDuty to kind of tie that back to these development teams who own all that stuff from cradle to grave, um, which is the key of how we kind of operate at scale now, is you own it as a dev team. Stuff's all available in the marketplace, too. I have another slide here that just sort of shows all of this stuff in the marketplace. The things that, these are all things that we use, by the way. Um, and everything with a, you probably gathered, yellow rectangle around it is available through Marketplace. We do a lot of private offers, um, which is a thing that works well for us. You can also get a lot of this stuff just off the shelf. Helps kind of ease the procurement process. There's some boilerplate stuff there to help you get off the ground. Um, but the slide in and of itself is not super interesting. Um, so we talked a little bit about the kind of FinOps part. We talked about the operations part. I want to kind of hone in on the security part a little bit, um, and remember, we went from one account to N accounts, now distributed problem with distributed ownership, and the question was, how are we going to actually secure all of this stuff, both without slowing down the business um, and being able to keep up with ourselves. So automation is great. Uh, there is a place for it. There is also a time when you need to crawl before you can walk or run. Um, so that's great. We applied that wherever we can. I'll talk about specifics of where we've done that. Um, but for us to get started, we needed to just have an idea if we wanted to be secure in the cloud of what being secure in the cloud actually meant or looked like, right? So we defined, um, and actually we wanted to do that so we didn't you know, feel like we were back here again where we had no direction and we're just kind of like grasping around for air. So um, you know, when we set down that path, uh, we found, and, and you should find some comfort in knowing that there are several things out there that can help you kind of get traction in what can otherwise feel like a tractionless uh, expanse of how to be secure in the cloud. Things like the NIST cybersecurity framework, there's helpful bits from the Internet Engineering Task Force as well. There's OWASP out there uh, in addition. Um, so taking advantage of these things and applying them to your environment uh, in a way that suits your business is a great place to start. So that's what we did. Um, and for us, that actually meant defining some RFCs, uh, which is a request for comment. Um, it's a document um, that basically outlines a set of standards. The goal there is to 
um, work collaboratively to define them. They basically became uh, the security laws by which we governed ourselves. Um, that line at the bottom is the specific um, IETF spec that defines how to do RFCs, if you're, if you're curious about it. But um, basically what goes into one of these things is all of this stuff. It's a document that has a set of laws. If you kind of take your eyes and scroll down to the standards section, which has a sub-bullet, must, shoulds, mays, may nots, that's, that's the meat of this thing. It's basically a set of rules about what you must and should do, uh, and may and may not do. Um, quick note on the, the shoulds. The shoulds are basically a soft must, like there needs to be a good reason not to. Um, so this isn't a fluffy document. This is basically the minimum amount of things to which we need to hold ourselves accountable in order to say that we've made a reasonable effort to secure our, in this case, next infrastructure in the cloud. Um, the way that this actually plays out is, is basically this. I mean, we talk, um, you know, to developers, we talk to ops people, we talk to security people, we get everyone together, um, and we go through this thing in a process of developing, reviewing, and ratifying the RFC. There's a period where it, uh, you know, has, um, there's optionality for people to get in compliance. Um, and there is a revision valve on that too. It isn't like you set it and then it's just done forever. You can come back to it and revisit that as your technology evolves. There's another thing we'll talk about here. Um, one of the kind of cultural keys to making this work, um, I, had a, I had a picture of uh, senior Costanza here. I wasn't allowed to use it, but there, this is supposed to be a reference to the airing of grievances uh, because that is sort of the cultural secret sauce to making one of these things work for us anyway, is that there's a period during which you can express uh, you know, if you have issues with the RFC, if you want to have input into it, and you can basically get anything off your chest that you need to as someone who's going to be beholden to that so that when that time comes or that window closes, you basically had the opportunity to speak and now you must forever hold your peace. So I guess until the next review uh, iteration. But anyway, so that's sort of like the cultural secret sauce to make this effective for us anyway. So some real examples, I alluded to the uh, Infrastructure one, this is the first one of the first ones we uh, defined, our RFC3, um, which is basically security standards for infrastructure operations in the cloud. Um, there's some actual examples down there. This is obviously much longer than this, uh, but I didn't think a wall of text was what you guys wanted to see. This is just sort of a directional indication of the um, body of that document. Um, and that helped us kind of define, if you remember back to that space slide, some guardrails to understand like what compliance actually looks like versus not, so we had somewhere to start. And that is a good start, but that's basically all that it was. Um, and so we needed to understand, now that we had defined some standards, how we were actually measuring up against them. Um, and so we ended up partnering with CloudSploit basically allows us to scan our entire AWS environment, which now is somewhere between 250 and 300 linked accounts um, at the moment for configurations. And that's, that's a huge list of known configurations that they'll uh, actually scan for and report on, um, which is another good kind of iterative step in the history of how we got to hopefully a place of better compliance, but that also isn't enough. Um, and so we wanted to take that and then make it more actionable. So we actually developed a tool in-house called Sploit Vision, uh, which is a little play on CloudSploit. These are just screenshots um, of the application itself. But if you look here at this one and you look very closely, you may notice that there are some RFC3 tags 
uh, in line on the uh, count four titled screenshot. That's basically to illustrate that the point of this thing was to take all of the like tremendous amount of data that we were getting from Cloudsploit to say, here's where you are in terms of your configuration, and distill that down to the most meaningful bits, which are the ones that we hold ourselves accountable to as defined in RFC3. So this basically put RFC compli RFC3 compliance for us more within reach, which is our next step along our path to compliance in the cloud. Um, couldn't neglect code, right? Uh, so we needed to define a standard to um, regulate kind of behavior uh, in terms of our security practices there, moving away or moving on from just infrastructure specific stuff. Um, we had noticed bugs making their way into production. It's not good, they're harder to remediate after they get there, especially when they have a security focus. Prefer to avoid that if you can, which is what is at the core of RFC 5 for us. Very similar to RFC 3, except for it is, as you may have guessed, a code-specific focus. There's some examples here. Again, this is just, for us, kind of the basic things that you must be doing in order to say, I've made an honest effort to actually secure my code now, in this case, in the cloud. Um, you can take a look and read through that, but I think you guys pretty much get the idea. Um, getting RFC 3 on the ground was a matter of making the data very uh, interpretable, so it was easily actionable. RFC 5, we took a little bit different approach, um, and that was integration into our SDLC, which today looks like the opportunity to partner with our dedicated security team for threat modeling exercises at inception. It's the kind of thing where you would consider, do I need web application firewall? Do I need DDoS protection from Shield? These are both AWS native services. Do I need to make port changes to my application? Um, we also have some of these controls integrated into our CICD pipeline and our SCM um, activities. So we have static application security testing, software composition analysis, Matt talked about earlier, integrated uh, into GitLab. Those are open source, uh, for the most part, um, integrations that we get, but they're easily integrated into our build pipeline. So much in the same way, we made RFC3 compliance easy and actionable by saying, hey, here's where you actually need to focus and that's it. We tried to make RFC5 compliance easy and actionable by giving tools to autonomous development teams that they could consume at speed in stride to get some of this stuff addressed, right? So um, the last little bit that we get from GitLab is that I wanna mention here is the dynamic application security testing. Um, that's like a WASP ZA proxy built right into your build pipeline. So you can just run that against your running application to smoke out more stuff than you get from like the static application security testing, which is a language-specific kind of lint-style lint evaluation of your code as a flat file, basically, to say here's a, all the way from like very bad to not very bad classification of the problems that they find. Um, so, okay, so we talked about RFC 3, cloud security, infrastructure, compliance, cool, RFC 5, code, uh, security compliance things. Now I'm going to drag you through a reference architecture slide to show you how all this stuff kind of plays together and fits together. So at the top, this is intentional. They're metaphorically seated above our entire reference architecture, right? Because they govern and are law at this point. Quick note about RFCs. After a while, they just become standards, right? So like technically they time out and become just accepted as law. And we're in that 
position now, I think, with both of these. Um, I talked a little bit about GitLab, some of the things that we get from there, in addition to the integrated uh, RFC 5-related security controls that we have in there, the threat modeling, the uh, SCA, the SAS, and the DAST. And that's a thing that a dev team circles with multiple times per day, all day long, right? If you're a developer, you probably would have a hard time avoiding your source code management, Git repo, whatever you're using. Um, and so that kind of swirls together in its own zone. Um, applications get built there, they get tested there too, and they get deployed to the cloud. We, as I mentioned, are AWS first, almost primarily AWS lion's share. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there uh, in a sample application. This is very high level, uh, and I won't go through all the pieces there. I'll get to them a little bit later in the presentation, but I just wanted to say, you know, those applications are built there. They flow then into the AWS cloud. We have our observability stack here. I alluded to this stuff earlier, talking about um, our tools that we consume from partners, uh, oftentimes across the marketplace. We have New Relic for insight into our applications, also more specifically how they're interacting with each other in terms of the basic health capacity, uh, in addition to Sumo for some forensic logging or um, you know, <clears throat> alerting coming out of that as well. Either one of these can generate alerts, which are fed back to developers who, remember, own this stuff cradle to grave for us via PagerDuty. Uh, and while those applications are running and circling in the cloud, for us almost exclusively AWS, there is information being fed back out to our SIM, our security information event management system. We use Splunk right now. We are probably early stages with that. Um, I'll talk about that a little bit, not too much, but um, the idea here is basically to give our SOC, our security operations center, visibility into the <clears throat> tremendous amount of logs that we generate from our entire production, also our enterprise environments, uh, in such a way that they're able to distill that down to the things they actually need to take action on to address with teams. Teams are responsible for monitoring this stuff too. It isn't just the SOC who like takes care of all of our security problems. That's why we have a DevOps culture with security included. Um, but that's generally how all this stuff fits together. And so, cool, now you've seen the architecture slide, the point up to which we've evolved. Um, once we had all this stuff defined, and we're sort of at the same natural point here, it makes sense to give that stuff a good test, right? Like you may think that you've done a lot to secure your environment. You may not uh, have actually, or you may have actually, but unless you test it, which is what we've done regularly, uh, you won't know for sure. Um, so we've engaged in several visibility exercises. That's what my CISO asked me to call this. Uh, they could be red team tests. They could be penetration vulnerability testing. They could be bug bounty programs. Like the point is, if you're gonna put in the effort to try and secure your environment, which you should, I recommend that, um, it also is worth investing a little bit to have that tested, right, to understand where you're at. And you learn a lot of stuff um, out of that too. Uh, for us, one of the things that we learned recently is sort of a, um, a basic set of requirements for accounts in addition to what we already had that if we adhere to, we are better positioned to defend ourselves against <clears throat> some of the scenarios we've simulated in those, in those red team and other tests, right? And for us, that's taken the form of basically a yardstick, we'll say, against which we will measure all accounts to say you must be this tall to exist um, in our environment. I'm just gonna grab this real quick. <clears throat> so talk about that a little bit. First thing for us was systems manager availability. If you have a lot of EC2, this is basically SSH for EC2 instances, uh, if you're not familiar with this thing, but it's a way to reach out to EC2 instances and do a thing to them. If you have 100 or 
500 or 1,000 or 10,000 EC2 instances in your environment, you find yourself in a situation in which you need to do something to some or all of them, especially in response to a threat or active bad actor, it's too late. So you probably want to have that stuff ahead of time, and that's why we add that into our basic kind of configuration, right? Um, some challenges there, um, older versions of operating systems may not be able to accommodate. It's worth it, work this stuff out. Um, have your logs flowing um, out of those sources, even if you don't have them flowing into a SIM to be able to have sort of ML and advanced uh, trending and detection on those things, just have them flowing out, right? Because if you have them flowing out, you have the insight into what's going on inside of your environment before it's too late. Uh, and there is such a thing as too late. So it is a good idea to have this stuff ready ahead of time. Um, in addition to that, don't forget your serverless architectures. It's easy to neglect those. You may have attack surface in your lambdas, in your EKS environment. There's plenty of places, corners of your cloud environment, depending on your architecture, but likely you may have some of the stuff if you're using it um, in which you can, you can be compromised as well, right? So getting instrumentation and visibility into those containers as well, as much as you can, good thing to not overlook. Um, and encrypt data at rest wherever you can. It's easy, doesn't cost anything. Most of this stuff's pretty mature. Um, and while it doesn't help with data exfiltration, it does help make the data useless if it does get exfiltrated, which basically helps with data exfiltration. So um, last two things I'll hit on this real quick. Also, have some sort of EDR present uh, if you have EC2 infrastructure. Um, that gives you visibility into those instances. So you may not think of these as actual vulnerable instances out in your environment. They are, and they may be. So having visibility and also ability to take automatic remediative action, such as network isolation of bots or other malicious things that may exist on those infrastructure, uh, is a great thing to have. And the last thing is um, that we learned from this, which I just threw this on there, it's not part of the yardstick, but we learned a lot about our knowledge gaps and opportunities for trainings for ourselves. We basically got to a DevOps culture by saying, okay, devs, you're now ops people too. And you're now also security people too. And while we've made tremendous progress in doing that, it's hard, and it's the thing you need to work on over time, and you need to make sure that you're putting in the time to actually um, address the needs that you have to be proficient in that stuff. Um, and it's just being realistic about that. Having a red team test or similar is a great way to highlight those gaps, and then you address them, and then you move on. That's it, it's not, it's not a knock against anyone. It's just a great way to stay ahead of someone who may be trying to compromise your environment. So for us, looking forward quickly, I uh, wanna continue to feed our sim. Things that we found are quality and volume are great, but coverage is really important. If you're gonna have an, if you have an incident going on, you're gonna end up digging into that anyway, right? So you wanna have a broad picture of your environment from that sim, more so than you wanna get super deep in one individual area. Um, that's a lesson I think that we learned. We're working on implementing some automated cloud security violation remediations. Talked about how we defined RFC, made it visible, made it more visible and actionable, now we're at the point where we're like, hey, why don't we just make some of that stuff happen automatically? We've all agreed that this is the basic kind of units of being secure, and so let's address that in automated fashion. Um, we also want to you know, continue to empower the business through DevSecOps practices, AWS and Marketplace. That, that's, that's just a generic statement to say, you know, stay the course in what we're doing, basically, and not waiver, which I think has been, for us, um, an important part of our success. And who knows what else, right? Continue to be open to new challenges as they arise. So, Looking back quickly over the stuff that I just uh, went through very quickly, um, we transitioned from a monolithic architecture to microservices, right? Went from long release cycles, remember back in the day they were three weeks, to uh, rapid on-demand releases. 
We also had separate dev security ops in the past. Now we have a DevOps culture. It's important to know that that is a culture. Um, and we have security integrated, sometimes in an automated fashion, sometimes manual, but we're continuing to mature there and improve. Um, and we went from having no established security standards in the very beginning to having measurable compliance with RFCs, now standards, so defined sets of documents to light our way uh, and be our North Star kind of. And we went from having plenty more to do here to still having plenty more to do here. This isn't something where you like plant a stake in the ground and you say we are now secure, right? Like threats are always evolving, your technology is always evolving, so are your customers, so you need to stay on top of that stuff. Quickly recapping some of the themes that helped us get there. And this number one is actually my favorite one. This isn't just fluff words, this is a real thing. Um, enabling the business, not stifling it. Security controls are great, automation is great. If it grinds your business to a halt, it's not great, right? Ultimately, at the end of the day, you're still a business, you're trying to serve your customers. All of these things that we do never get in the way of the business, and that's oftentimes challenging, uh, but it is a golden rule by which we live so that we are actually continuing to add value to our operation instead of just applying a clamp to it. Um, and finding and maintaining that balance is sometimes hard, but it's a very important thing because we're not just doing this stuff in a vacuum, we're doing this as part of a larger group trying to accomplish something together. So that's an, that's an important point. I alluded to this before, our commitment to a DevSecOps culture all in cloud strategy. I talked about kind of the leadership buy-in, the air cover, that stuff is critical to stay the course. Uh, making good DevSecOps practice easy and actionable. You guys saw that, I think I said it specifically when I talked about uh, Sploit Vision, whereby we made that RFC3 compliance much more within reach by distilling it and making it easy to get at. Um, if you can remove any excuse not to do this stuff, then hopefully it happens some more. That's basically the goal there. Um, for these autonomous teams. We're not breathing down anyone's neck, but we are at the same time removing excuses for not doing stuff that we wanna see happen across our environment. Um, and our partnership with AWS uh, and others through Marketplace, Matt alluded quickly to undifferentiated heavy lifting earlier in the presentation. That's a real thing. That's basically the stuff that you have to do to do the stuff that you actually want to or need to be doing to grow your business. That's where our partnership really helps us win. We don't have to focus on managing bare metal. We don't have to build a GitLab. We don't have to build New Relic. We don't have to build Sumo Logic. We consume those services, we stand on their shoulders, and we get a little bit farther together. Um, and this is just a little throwaway picture to basically say what I said before already, which is like, I I've taken you a little bit through our evolution. Um, we're not planting a stake and saying that we're now done. Um, this is an ongoing process. We may be somewhere in the middle, let's say our knuckles have just healed from our previous evolutionary step or whatever, but um, this stuff is never over. So we write software to serve our customers, basically, to seize opportunities or fix problems. And as long as those problems don't stagnate, neither can our software and our approach to dev security uh, and operations. Uh, and so basically, great to talk to you now, and things will be totally different next year. So thanks, I hand it back to Matt. Thanks, Jeremy, that yeah. was fantastic. <clears throat> Just to kind of finish this off really quickly, um, I, I am from the AWS marketplace. We talked a little bit about evolution and how companies grow. Um, I like to think of evolution in two ways, right, when it comes to technology. There's sort of the random variation selection model, if you remember back to Darwin, and there's sort of the more intelligent designy type stuff. What, a, what AWS marketplace allows you to do is actually go in and test new things, right? They can work for your environment, right? And I know that Simpris has done this. We've had thousands of customers that have done similar things, right? So you can go into the AWS marketplace. We have 1,500 ISVs represented there. 
Um, and a, a, a lot of them, I don't remember what the exact stat is right now, but we have a lot of security vendors uh, in there. We have over 7,000 product listings across 39 categories, um, including DevOps and, of course, security. Uh, we're deployed in 20 regions. Uh, the beauty of the AWS Marketplace is it makes it easy to find, test, procure, and then deploy software on top of your AWS infrastructure. And as I mentioned earlier, this is sort of the supporting cast for your, uh, your, your robust sort of uh, core IP that is your applications, right? That's your competitive differentiation. We want to allow you to lose, use tools really, really easily to sort of supplement what you're doing from a core IP development perspective. Um, and so with that, uh, I'd like to say thank you. I want to say especially a big thank you to Jeremy. Um, who has done just a masterful job in helping me uncover new things about sort of the DevSecOps space and, and really giving some insight into how a company like Simpress Technology uh, is doing this and working in partnership with the AWS Marketplace. Yeah, thanks. Thanks to you, too. Thank you. Thanks, guys.